I don't know if you are familiar with the differences between Japanese culture and American culture. Uh, there's been, I don't know if they're called studies per se, but people have observed the differences in Japanese students that come to America and sit in, in American classrooms versus Americans who go to Japan and sit in on Japanese classrooms. And in general, you can maybe imagine the differences, right? The Japanese learning style is very much more uh, sit and listen to what the teacher says. The American style is more interactive, at least at the collegiate level, right, with some question and answer and dialogue. But that's foreign to the Japanese student. The Japanese student, you, you sit and you listen to what the professor has to say, and you take notes, and, uh, and that's that. But there are differences. You can maybe take that and you can imagine there are differences really in every culture that are just kind of built in to how we act, how, how we are, whether that's us as Americans, uh, whether you're Japanese, whether you're from the Middle East or Europe, right? There are distinctness, distinct things within each culture, within each people group, really. And so that is no different than what we see here this morning in our passage in the distinctness of the people of God. There's a, there's a distinctness about who we are and how we are in comparison to the, the culture of the world. What we do seems different. It seems strange to other people around us. And yet that is who we are as Christians. We are part of the citizenship of the kingdom. And so we will have these distinct character qualities. And so that's what we see this morning. In the book of Matthew, we've already seen that John the Baptist came and he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we saw Jesus with the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then at the end of chapter 4 in the book of Matthew, Jesus went around teaching and preaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And so Jesus has been going around and proclaiming this kingdom. And now as we start in chapter 5 in the book of Matthew, we see what that news, that good news about the kingdom was about, what that message was. If you've ever wondered, what did Jesus preach about? What did he talk about when he taught people? Well, this is it. This is a major portion of Matthew where we find what was Jesus actually teaching? What was he teaching his disciples? And he's teaching them really about what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be a disciple of God? And sometimes we hear, we hear about the kingdom of God. And I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes when I hear that, I just have this kind of fuzzy idea of abstractness of the kingdom. But there's nothing real concrete behind that. It's, it's ethereal. It's kind of just spacey and out there. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean, the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be a part of that? 
what are the details. And so Jesus is doing that here. He's really, he's telling us, why, why should we care about this message? Right, this is the message of the kingdom. Jesus has said, this is good news. Well, here we have the explanation of how this is good news. This is why it's good news. This is why we pay attention to what God has said, what Jesus came to tell us, and why we can believe it and then proclaim this message as well. So people believed, right, at the end of chapter 4. People heard the good news proclaimed. They believed. And now what? Now what are they supposed to do? They've believed this message. They've come to Jesus. They're following him. But what is life supposed to be like now? That's really what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And that's where we'll start this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16 of chapter 5. And really, one commentator called this the discourse on discipleship. That's really a good way to think about it because this is not just a general code of ethics, but Jesus is narrowing in on the the specific demands of the kingdom of heaven. And we see that from the very beginning as he said that his disciples came to him and he taught them. He's teaching the disciples here. So let's read. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open to Matthew chapter 5 and we'll read verses 1 through 16. Matthew 5 verses 1 through 16. And the word of the Lord says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. And so as we look at this, this is, frankly, it's kind of daunting to preach on because this is probably the greatest sermon ever preached, and here I'm preaching on it. Uh, There have been many people who have preached it. There are many ways to go about it. 
We're not going to zoom in detail by detail, line by line, so to speak. But we will look first by just walking through these beatitudes, as they're called, and make some brief comments on the distinct nature, the distinct qualities of Christians that it lists. And then we'll kind of zoom out and look at two big picture observations of how these things all fit together and what they mean. And so as we look at them, these are called the Beatitudes. Your Bible might have that heading. Uh, When I was a kid, I thought it was pronounced Betitudes, but I learned better. But this is just a way of saying that this is, these are sayings that denote blessing, really. That's what beatitude is. And so you could say that each of these, each one of them has this character quality. What is a disciple supposed to be like? How are you supposed to live? And then connected to each one of those is a a reward or a description of the goodness of being this kind of person, of being in the kingdom of God. So what is the person of the kingdom supposed to look like? What is the goodness of being in the kingdom? And so every quality on this list is for everyone who follows Jesus. It's not that some of us are really good at some, but this one over here I'm not as good at, so I'm going to focus on these. No, they're for everyone. Everyone is supposed to grow in these. This is the full picture of what it means to be a disciple. And so if you're a Christian, you can look at this list and see this is what I should be trying to live out. Are there areas of weakness that I'm not as good at? How can I grow in these? How can I focus on making my life look like this? And so the first one, Jesus starts and says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And this is really foundational. This is foundational of what it means to be a part of the kingdom, what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. It means we're poor in spirit. So you remember the the proverb, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that is really at the heart of what this is. We understand that there's not greatness inside of us. God doesn't accept us because we're something special. But we have goodness that we receive from God. It's not from ourselves or because we deserve it. And so if you, one way to think about this, if you look at the Old Testament, you remember all the kings that are listed throughout the history of Israel, right? The book of Kings and Chronicles, you read and you read again and again how the kings, they always fell into the same pattern, it seems like. There would be some challenge, some enemy that would come, and, and threatened to overthrow the whole country. And what would they do? The good kings would trust in God. They would pray to him. They would rely on him. But most of the kings, they would send to another army and pay them and say, hey, can you come help us out? Whether that was Egypt or Assyria or other kingdoms, they would go pay them and we're going to rely on them and they're going to come deliver us. Right? And that is really the opposite of this poor in spirit because they weren't relying on what God had told them. They thought they knew better. That's being proud in spirit when you think you know better, not poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is relying on what God has said and trusting it. And so that's really the core of this, that 
whatever God says we submit to and we line up with because we know that he knows better than we do. This is, Isaiah 66, 2 says this, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And so we see that being poor in spirit really is that submission to the word of God. That's at the heart of it. So if you want to be a disciple, this is fundamental. This is core. We are poor in spirit. We rely on what God has said. We trust that, well, we trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, right? We're poor in spirit. We trust his promises of his kingdom. And so, if this is who we are as disciples, what is the good news that's accompanying this? We're not supposed to rely on ourselves, but rely on God. And what does this mean? If we're this kind of person, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is yours. The kingdom of heaven is yours. So think, you really have to know the Old Testament to have this background, but read the last 20 chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 66, and you get this picture of the kingdom of God and what it looks like. The, the lion lies down with the lamb, you remember. You see swords being refashioned into plows. You see abundance of life, fullness of joy. This description of this glorious light that comes. All of this is the kingdom of God. All of this, Jesus is saying, is yours. This is good news. You're a part of this if you rely on God and his word and not on yourself. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so as with many of these, this one is taken from the Old Testament. It's taken from Isaiah 61, which was our scripture reading this morning. It talks about Mourning because you're in a wretched situation is how uh, the commentator R.C. France described it. It's that we experience burdensome and weary things in life. Right? Following Jesus is hard. Brother Ken said that in Sunday school this morning. So even if you might not say that right now about your life, if you were to maybe zoom out and look at Christianity as a whole throughout the earth, throughout the world right now, I think you would agree that Christianity is hard. It's, it's a place where people die, where governments oppose and are continuing to be emboldened against religion and Christianity specifically. We see that even in Canada and America today. And so there is reason to mourn Mourn because of hardship, because of uh, this oppression, so to speak. That's what Israel was going through in Isaiah 61. And so Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, that those who ask, How long, O Lord? That those who cry out to God, they will be comforted. And that's a promise. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That those who experience these difficulties in life will experience the favor and comfort of God. 
and knowing that, and we'll talk about this later, but knowing that means that we are living the good life. Just because we're mourning or life is hard doesn't mean that our life is not good right now. We will be comforted. It's good because we know how this life will be resolved. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Then he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To be meek really just implies this absence of vengeance, this absence of malice. Uh, the famous preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he phrased it like this. He said, rightly applied, meekness is our attitude towards others. We acknowledge our own bankruptcy, that's poor in spirit, and we mourn, but to respond with meekness when others tell us our bankruptcy is far harder. Meekness, therefore, requires such a true view about ourselves as, we, as will express itself even in our attitudes towards others. And so, if poor in spirit and mourning is our relationship with God, this meekness gets at our our attitude, our relationship with other people. We're not exalting ourselves above them, but we understand that we're really not that different from them, that we are those in need just like them. And so that affects how we live, what we do. Jesus is saying that really Christians have the long game in mind, that we don't have to use overpowering tactics or manipulative efforts to bring about the kingdom of God. He says that the kingdom of God has come. Nothing will stop it. And so those who are weak, who are meek, are waiting on God to bring that about. And the whole world one day will be theirs. Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The way that Christians... The way that the kingdom will come is not through force, is not through power, but is through meekness. And so as meek disciples, we trust that God's word will work to bring about his purposes. And we don't have to add on top of that to bring about a certain result. He will do it, and we wait on him. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Being a disciple of Jesus means that you want holiness more. It means that you want righteousness more. And so you can think about this on all kinds of levels. The personal level, right? The righteousness that you want for your family and you want to see them follow the Lord. The righteousness that you want for the nation, for the world, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so this really sounds very familiar to Psalm 42, 1. You remember the song, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. And that verse really helps us connect these ideas that hungering and thirsting for righteousness is really this hunger and thirst for more of God because he is righteous. And so this amazing promise of this verse is that as long as we are longing for righteousness, as we want more of it, that will happen. We will have 
that we shall be satisfied. As we seek God, we find him. As we draw near to him, he draws near to us. Those are promises in the Bible. And so we will never come to a point where we have been filled with all that we can of God. And so for the rest of eternity, we will continue to be amazed and amazed by him. And these verses say that we will be satisfied. Maybe not here on earth, but one day when we see him. And God meets that longing and he fills it. And so this is, this is what it means to be a disciple. That God promises to make us more righteous and we seek after that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. To be meek, one commentator said, to be meek is to acknowledge to others that we are sinners, but to be merciful is to have compassion on others, for they are sinners too. And so sometimes we think that we think that people will get away with things, right? We have this tendency that we don't like it when people get away with something they shouldn't. We want, we want justice, right? Especially when it affects us. If it's just out there, but when someone's wronged you and someone else doesn't get in trouble for it, that rubs you the wrong way, right? And so we... Sometimes we, we hold on to that. But if we think about mercy, and specifically God's mercy, how does God think about this? This is not how God acts. He is merciful. You remember God causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good every day. He sends rain for everyone. He doesn't discriminate in that sense. And so God, who is being patient. He's being merciful. He knows that this is not going to change the outcome, so to speak, that people aren't going to get away with things. And yet he knows that he can still be merciful in the moment, that even if someone may deserve something else right now, he can still be good to them. And so he says to us that we should also have that, that we should display that kind of mercy, that kind of forgiveness, and compassion to other people. And so blessed are the merciful. This is what it means to be a disciple. We are merciful because God is merciful. And Jesus says that when we show mercy, that other people aren't going to just get away with things and maybe walk all over us, so to speak, but we will receive mercy. And so when you may think that others are going to take advantage of you or that you're just being soft, remember that God will give you mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He is pleased with mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There are no ulterior motives in purity of heart. You think about gold how it has to be it has to be melted down it has to be removed all the impurities have to be removed melted away so that it has that singular quality that precious metal running throughout it 
And so really that's a picture of what it means to be pure in heart. We have that singular focus in following God. And as we have that singular focus, it means also that those impurities, those sins will not linger in us. They'll be removed as well. And so this is what kind of heart we need. This is the kind of heart that will dwell with God on his holy hill, as the psalmist says. And this is our focus, completely focused, not not distracted, not not on Sunday focused on God, not in the morning during our Bible study focused on God and other times focused on other things, but in everything, how can we focus on God and what he wants and bring about what is pleasing to him? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is good news. Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. You shall see God. If you focus on following him and are singularly devoted to him, you will see him. You will experience him. That happens here on earth. We get glimpses more and more right now. But Paul said we see in a mirror dimly right now, but one day we will see face to face one day we will fully see him. And that is what is in store for those of us. So in all the things that you have to lay aside, remember the, the weight, the sin that easily ensnares us. Not just sin, but weight. Things that maybe hold us back from following God that aren't necessarily sin, but aren't good in our following and our running after him. Hebrews says we should lay those aside. But don't think that in laying those aside, you're losing something. This says, no, this is good. This is for your good. You're gaining because you will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. One thing to notice about this is that they are making peace. Right? Sometimes it's easy to just move on when we get wronged, when someone wrongs us. It's easy to just cut ties and not have to mess with the situation anymore. And sometimes that is prudent, and it takes wisdom to know. But sometimes we like to get to that step maybe one or two steps too soon. Whereas God would say, blessed are the peacemakers. How can you seek to reconcile? Is it possible to reconcile this situation? How can we make this right? And that's the example that Jesus set for us, ultimately, because he makes peace between us and God. He is the peacemaker. He's the prince of peace, right? And so this is where peace ultimately begins. It begins in our need for God. And when we are reconciled, we're made at peace with God. Then we can have peace. We can have peace with others. And now, now we have been given the same task as peacemakers who not only seek to make peace between us and other people, but seek to bring other people to peace with God. That's what Paul said. He pleaded with people to be reconciled to God. That was his mission, to make peace. He said, beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel, who bring peace. That's a paraphrase. That's not a good quote, but Romans 10, 15. And so we see that idea that peacemaking is connected to this idea of bringing people, not just peace between each other, but that ultimate peace of peace with 
God. And that's where peace starts. And then he says, finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Verse 11 says something very similar, but puts it in the second person. So here, when we think about the good life, usually we don't think about hardship or being persecuted. Right? We think that if we're being treated unfairly or oppressed or persecuted, that things aren't going well. But Jesus says, if you are persecuted for righteousness, then just the opposite is actually happening. This is the good life. This is a blessed life. And that is incredibly important to remember. For those who seek to make peace, all of these we didn't really touch on it, but all of these are interconnected. When you seek to make peace, sometimes people don't want to make peace. In fact, they'll continue to not be peaceful and they'll oppose you. So what do you do in those situations as a Christian? When you, when you seek to make peace, but there's pushback and in fact there's persecution, Jesus says you're blessed when you continue to do righteousness. So in America, I think we could say when America persecutes Christians, and they start limiting who can go to church or what you can say when you preach about the Bible. They say that talking about the Bible is hate speech and it's a punishable offense. Remember that you are blessed in those moments. It's not really a radical idea to think that those things might happen. They're already happening in countries close to us in the Western world, in Canada specifically. And so whenever this comes, don't let persecution make you waver from the gospel. Don't let the threat of losing your job or your freedoms make you back down from following Jesus. Jesus is saying, no, this is the right path. Just because it's hard doesn't mean you chose the wrong path. This is the good path. This leads to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is yours. When other people oppose you and want to cast you out, they cannot cast you out from the kingdom. That, that hunger and thirst for righteousness, that wasn't a mistake. That righteousness that got you into this situation, that wasn't a mistake. That is right where you need to be. That is right how you live as a disciple of Jesus, as a citizen of the kingdom. And so when we live this way, what happens? This is what a disciple looks like. And when a disciple looks like this, it brings salt to the earth and it brings light to the world. It's distinct, right? We're distinct from the culture. It's good for us to live in a distinct way. Have you ever heard the phrase, you can be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. I really don't like that phrase. I really don't like it at all. I think, um, I mean, there might be some good things we can get out of it. But really, those who are of the most earthly good are the most heavenly-minded. Because those who are heavenly-minded will display this saltiness, this light to the world. And that is good for the people around you. It brings, it brings flavor. It brings preservation 
It brings warmth and light. And so if you follow Jesus, you'll stand out. And Christianity has stood out, and it has brought good things. Sometimes we don't think about this, but think about all the the good that Christianity has brought to the world. The educational systems, the, the hospitals, the ethical standards, the artistry and creativity throughout the ages. Christianity has brought a lot to the world, a lot of saltiness, so to speak, a lot of flavor, a lot of light. But not only do we bring these things, we, as we are doing this, we are imitating Jesus, who is the light of the world. Light has dawned, that's what Matthew said in chapter 4, and we are simply imitating him. We're displaying that light through us as we follow him, as we are distinct. The world doesn't need us to be like them. The world needs us to be distinct. And so that was maybe a not as brief as I had thought walkthrough of the Beatitudes. But a couple of things as we close. One, it's no surprise, we didn't touch on them all, but it's no surprise that Matthew in all of these is really looking back to the Old Testament. These are not original ideas that Jesus is saying. These are consistent with the whole Bible. And so we, we saw that in Isaiah. We saw it with uh, the Psalms and how he's picking up from those ideas. And so one thing that means is that to be a disciple of Jesus means that you're in line with the teaching and the promises of the Old Testament. Right? This is a consistency. This is it's not like there's one teaching for the Old Testament or there's a different God in the Old Testament and a new one in the New Testament. No, it's consistent as far as how we should live. And one thing further we could say is that Jesus is taking these principles and these promises even from the Old Testament. Promises about the kingdom, promises about inheriting the earth, promises about uh, being sons of God. He's applying those, he's taking those promises and he's applying them to his disciples. Which is not an insignificant thing. We'll talk more about that next week as we think about how Jesus came to not abolish, but to fulfill the law. But we see that this idea that Jesus says that the people of God are the people of God regardless of ethnicity, but based on faith. So Paul has that idea in Romans. The children of Abraham are the children of faith. If you have faith, you're in this line book of Ephesians chapter 2 says the same thing. Gentiles have been brought near and now have received the promises. Once you didn't have the promises, but now you have them. And so this idea that people who are Gentiles who didn't have the promises, the promises were made to someone else. Now, these promises can be yours as a disciple of Jesus. You're brought into the family of God, so to speak. And that's through Jesus. Jesus unites us. But we'll see that more next week. Again, as I said, as we think about how Jesus fulfills the law. And so blessed, blessed, blessed. That's the word we see over and over. These are descriptions of the good life. Blessed are you if you do these things. So whether your version translates this as blessed or happy, this idea is that the good life is yours. 
if you are poor in spirit, if you mourn, etc. Jesus is really, he's reorienting us to what it means to live a good life. That a good life is maybe opposite from what the world would say. Here's what the world would say. Blessed are those who are confident because the self-confident can accomplish anything they set their mind to. Blessed are those who never experience sadness. Blessed are those who are strong. Blessed are those who have everything they need. Blessed are those who don't let people get away with their substandard actions. Blessed are those who leverage their money and power to get what they want. People say that's the good life. Blessed are those who are loved and congratulated by the people around them. These are some of the ways the world would describe the good life. But as you can see, Jesus' description is distinct. It's different from that. The good life is a life of hardship, a life of servitude, a lowly life. And yet Jesus said that it's the good life, not because of what you're experiencing, but because you're inside the kingdom. It's not because of what you experience here on earth, but it's because you are a part of the kingdom. And there's more than just this life. So really it is that perspective of not just here and now, but who do I know, who do I follow, and where will I end up? Because the good life is the life that follows Jesus and the life that will end up with him forever. And so even now when we face things that are terrible, that are difficult. We have the good life because Jesus is still with us and he guides us through those things. It's not an accident. We go through them. He walks with us through everything in life, leading us home. And so if God is real and heaven is real, then following him down this path is the good life, believing that every good thing, everything we need comes from him and not from this world. That is the blessed life. And that's the life Jesus presents to us as he talks about what should you as a disciple do? What should your life look like? What is the good news of following after him? Well, it's blessedness. You are blessed by God this morning if you are a Christian. That is a great thought. The favor of God rests upon you if you are a Christian. What a great thought. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we are thankful for your word. Oftentimes we wouldn't describe the life we live as the good life when we are facing interruptions in life or agitated or frustrated with something. Lord, help us to remember to, one, to live righteously in that moment so that we would display you, we would display the light that you have. We would be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. But we pray that, we, that you are with us in those moments and you lead us and you're good to us. Lord, I pray that we would grow in this, that we would look like people who live out these beatitudes, who are poor in spirit, 
And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Response this morning. And as always, if you need to respond, however you need to respond, use this time to